All right, welcome everybody to episode three of the Business Line podcast. I'm Brian. This is my my good partner in crime, Manny, otherwise known as Manish. Uh, don't get that wrong. He doesn't like it when you get it wrong. Um, thanks again for joining us for episode three. Just real quick, if you didn't get a chance to catch episode two, you can pause this or watch this and go back. Make sure you watch episode two. Some really good insight, really great stories from David Kitchen, yeah. leadership Some expert. Crazy stories, yeah. Um, and uh, you're not going to want to miss that. Some really good stuff. But now on to the important matter of the day. We've got a fantastic guest uh, to share time with today. His name is Marty Hurwitz. He is the founder of a company called The MVI. Is that right, Marty? Yes. All right. The MVI. And this this is one of the coolest things. We're going to get pretty deep into it a little bit later on in the podcast. But it's all about lab-grown diamonds. And man, I'm just, I can't wait to learn about what's going on in that industry and how you're moving and shaking, Marty. But to get started, uh, tell us, uh, well, actually, let me introduce you. Let me tell the, the folks a little bit about you who might not be familiar with you. So you're a subject matter expert in lab-grown diamonds, which is a powerfully disruptive technology in global gem and scientific arenas. Um, he's done significant research on this topic since 2004. Again, with 2004, you guys don't want to know what I was doing in 2004. I was not very <laughs> impressive. I was at working all. really hard. I don't know about you, but I was working really hard. You at probably were. You were building a business. I mean, I was having fun. I was working for the Boy Scouts of all of yeah. all things. But anyway, um, and you've been act- actively involved in the rapid global growth of this explosive market. Um, you're the founder of this company we're going to talk about a little bit today, the MVI, uh, which provides research and communication services to a global client list, including Tiffany, Rio, Tinto, BHP, uh, Swarovski, Signet, Hallmark, Pandora, Titan, um, and Sequoia Capital. That's a, those are some big names. Those are powerful players. Um, in 2004, the MVI completed its first consumer research study on awareness and acceptance of lab-grown diamonds for fine jewelry. And every year since, uh, your company it has monitored the progress of this category with consumers and trade organizations globally. Um, that's that's cool stuff, man. We I don't even know if we're worthy to be on the podcast with you, Marty, honestly. Um, I can't wait uh, to hear about your journey to get to where you are today and, and and learn a little bit about what's going on in this market and why we should be paying attention. What do you think, man? Yeah, you know, like, first I want to start with this, you know, like, kind of, you know, like, will sound like a silly question, but I'm intrigued about the name, the MVI. So what does that mean? I mean, how did you come up with this name, MVI? The original name for the company was MVI, the letters MVI Marketing. Okay. And uh, as we evolved more and more in the digital sphere uh, and our marketing got more digital as opposed to traditional, we thought we would come up with something a little catchier that was related to what we do, which is really keeping an eye on uh, consumer yeah. research and trends. So we, we adapted the name, came up with a cool logo. It's turned out to be pretty uh, effective for us. Love it. Very cool. It is catchy. So tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself, Marty, your journey, kind of your, your, from your humble beginnings to, uh, to where you are today. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Really, I've enjoyed watching your, uh, your other episodes, and uh, it's great to be with you. And, and literally, this has been a 32, 33-year journey that started in some pretty humble beginnings, 
I was a very small third generation jewelry retailer uh, at the beginning. And uh, I'd had some marketing and market research background in other industries. And eventually I just got sick of being a retailer, which is a brutal business. Where are you from originally, Marty? Uh, Originally from Brooklyn, New York. All right. New York. Okay. Jewelry retail in Brooklyn. That must have been an adventure. It was intense. Yeah. Literally had research and marketing experience in some other industries. And I just pivoted when I didn't want to be in retail anymore. And I started, hung out a shingle to the jewelry industry, offering consumer research uh, to anybody that would listen to me because nobody was doing it at that time. There was no real monitoring of consumer trends. There was no real interest in consumer trends. It was a very traditional bound business that didn't change much. And I thought somebody should be keeping an eye on what consumers thought. And, uh, you know, slowly but surely people started paying attention. My wife was from the wholesale side of the jewelry business. We met at a trade show. She joined me as a, as a partner we moved to California, 1987, 88, and we started really catering to the influx of jewelry coming in from overseas markets into the U.S. And that's that's really where we hit on a couple of clients that drove our business. Wow! So that was in the late 80s. So tell, tell how how's marketing uh, from your standpoint? I, obviously, it's drastically changed. But what was, what was the what were, what was the process for marketing in the late '80s? What were you doing then? Well, this is this is a great uh, sort of right place, right time story for us. And literally, we were working out of our apartment in Los <laughs> Angeles, and we couldn't pay the rent, let alone do any advertising. We had a fax machine, Ooh. and you remember those? Oh, and, yeah. uh, and we ran one ad, a quarter page ad in a magazine called Jewelry News Asia, which was a trade magazine. And the ad said, if you want more sales from the lucrative U.S. market, it had a little map of the U.S., fax this number. And the audience was all in Asia, in China, Singapore, India, and Australia. And because of the time difference, the fax machine would ring all night long and wake <laughs> us up. And eventually, and we would get a lot of inquiries, literally 10, 20 a day, because everybody was making jewelry overseas, wanted to sell it to U.S. retailers. 10, 20 leads a day in the middle of the night. I'd love to wake up to 20 new leads tomorrow morning. I can morning. relate to that. You know, like we used to work in the night shift. You know, back <laughs> yeah, in yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I can relate to that. Sorry, Marty. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. So, so. Most of them were unqualified to afford us at Mm -hmm. all. And so my wife stopped waking up to the fax machine. I continued to wake up to it. And then one day we got a fax from the world's largest diamond mine in Australia called Argyle. And I I looked at this sheet and I couldn't believe it. Remember, it was those curly sheets then. I couldn't believe it. And I went up and I I woke up my wife screaming. I said, do you know who these guys are? Mm-hmm. This is the biggest diamond mine in the world. They were they used to mine the most expensive pink diamonds. And they also um, mined brown diamonds, which we, we wound up, they wanted to change the name to champagne diamonds. 
And long story short, a week later, they were on a plane visiting us in Los Angeles, and we helped them do research and development of this new category, Champagne Diamonds, and they stayed with us for 25 years. That's amazing. So when they came to LA, you guys were working out of your apartment. Where did you, how did you wow them? How did you roll out the red carpet? <laughs> well, we didn't have to because they took rooms at the Four Seasons Hotel. So you just went we by them. them there. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Oh yeah, I've been here a lot. We, we spent a lot of time here, right? <laughs> yeah, Four exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, that is cool. That doesn't make me feel so bad. You know, when we started Panacea in 2016, remember it, it was where you were in India still, right? Because you had gone home. Joe was in Johnson's Creek and I was in Manitowoc. We we're all kind of working out of our bedrooms. Yeah. And then we decided to get an office in Fond du Lac, which is about an hour from where I was living, half an hour from here. It was here. a church building. It was a church. We're in the upstairs of an old church yeah, for our first church, yeah. couple of years. But it's like that. Right? It's right. It's like you want to be you want to be honest and forthright, but there is a little bit of smoke and mirrors when it comes to landing your first few clients to give them the confidence to make the right decision to choose you, right? There's a lot to be said about that. Yeah, I don't, I've never felt it was a linear equation. Yeah. Uh, everybody thinks, oh, you go to A, you go to B, you go to C, you get to D. It doesn't work that way. It no. was, it's a very squiggly path, <laughs> and most of it you don't know where it's going once you start out on the road. And kind of just ride the wave. certainly been true to me at several different key points along the way. We were, we were in the right place at the right time and took advantage of it. That's so cool. From a from a uh, a trade industry magazine directed to the Asian market, it's looking to break. So there's something to say about that, right? You're 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 sending your message to the right person. Basic message: If you want to sell in this market, picture of the U.S. Facts. <laughs> Call to action: Facts. Right? It's so crazy that something you know to where you are now just was built off of that little seed. That's really cool. Yeah. I would have Same. never thrown away that fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> I would have kept it. The same thing happened with Lab Grown that got us into it. it was right place at the right time. Two thousand. The technology's been around since the fifties, um, but it wasn't until two thousand four that one of the growers figured out how to grow a high quality one carat Lab Grown diamond that could be sold in a jewelry store. Yeah, and we were we were actively involved with somebody wanted to buy that grower. And so they asked us to do some research with consumers to see what consumers would think about this product. And we did, and it was off the charts. Uh, and that was the beginning of uh, using the research to, to, to show a reluctant industry that this was going to be a big category. Wow. So how has this, you know, like, lab-grown diamond industry has grown over the years? I mean, what is the percentage of, I mean, is it like only in U.S. that it has grown or worldwide it has grown? Because I'm from India. I've never heard of, you know, like lab-grown diamonds, you know, like when we go and buy jewelry back in India, what we see are like real diamonds. They don't tell us, you know, like these are lab-grown diamonds. So I'm assuming that lab-grown diamond market is not big in India. But here I'm, I have done some, you know, like paperwork saw some research it is growing steadily so how much it has grown over the years and what do you see in the you know the future of this industry in the u.s and globally well it started has certainly started in the u.s and the u.s is 50 percent of all the world's uh, jewelry retailing yeah. output that's crazy 
Yeah. And and, think about that. We're not even close to 50% of the the population, right? Mm-hmm. No, but wow. India is again a big market for gold jewelry. It's, diamonds are not that popular in India but because gold. it doesn't have, uh, you know, resale value. Mm. Gold, it has a lot. So wow. 50%. Yeah. Sorry, Marty. That just that blows yeah. my mind. No problem. So, so awareness at a consumer level is now 80% of consumers in the U.S. are now aware of cons- of lab-grown diamonds. And to about 30 to 50% of every engagement ring being sold in the U.S. is now lab-grown diamonds. Wow. 72% of retailers are, are, are carrying and selling lab-grown diamonds right now in the U.S. Now, the rest of the world is hearing about it. And this is all being driven by the millennial age consumer. This is what the research told us. And this Mm. is what's true because consumers 25 to 40 years old are very interested in sustainability in all consumer products that they buy. They're very interested in the effects of climate change. Uh, And the lab grown is is a good alternative uh, to a mined diamond and and better for the environment because we don't have to dig up or move any earth to make them. And that's just it, right? Yeah. The cost to, to extract is a big factor. Right. Not to mention you can get a bigger diamond for less money. Uh, and so in the U.S., it's already taken hold. In the other markets, European market in particular, Australian market in particular, these markets are quickly catching up. And even in India, Manny's right, a heavily traditional gold-buying co- country, mm-hmm. even there, with 350 millennial age consumers now starting to shop, yeah. 350 million millennial age consumers. That's they are now are all in the U.S. Oh man, that they are all they are very interested in an alternative that is sustainable, not just in jewelry but in all the products they buy. Yeah, I mean, over the recent in the last two decades, I mean, previously when we used to buy engagement rings, they used to be gold. Just but gold. now everybody is buying, you know, diamond rings. So yeah, the trend is taking off in India. People are more interested in buying, you know, diamond jewelries. But this lab grown, I mean, I have not seen in India. But yeah, I mean, it is picking up. Yeah, if I showed up, you know, when I proposed to my wife with just a band of gold, I'd still be single. <laughs> and you'll be happy. Right? I'm happy now. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, it is getting recorded. That's why you're saying this. What are you doing, man? (laughs) She was. Marty, are you married? I married married, uh, Liz, my wife, that came to partner with me. I had to beg her, but eventually we got married, (laughs) and uh, we've been working together and raised a couple of kids. And kiddos. A couple more years, we'll figure out how to do it right. Well, right, exactly. (laughs) Well, maybe next time we have you on, you you can have Liz sitting with you, and I'll Maybe we'll do a couples podcast or something. Is that even a thing? I just came up with that. That might be a really bad idea. I don't know. Maybe not. We'll see. So where are you living now, Marty? Uh, we live in San Diego now. Oh, my gosh. You oh, go from wow. Brooklyn, you're to L.A., and you're basically in the one place in the entire world that always has good weather. I've never, I've, I haven't been. I was in California two weeks ago in Bakersfield, uh, a little bit different than San Diego, but, you know. Everybody's. In, I just say California, and everybody's really impressed that I got to go to California. We're in Wisconsin. It's kind of a big deal to leave the state ever. So, 
So, Mark, about this lab-grown diamonds, I mean, can you control, uh, like in real diamonds, you have different clarity and different categories. Do you have the same thing in lab-grown diamonds? I mean, are they, can, can you control the clarity, control, you know, like the quality and categories of the diamonds? You have exactly the same characteristics and qualities that you have in mine diamonds. And every lab-grown diamond is graded by the various uh, laboratories, G, uh, GIA, IGI, whatever the certification body is, they're graded exactly the same as mine diamonds. And the best part is you can grow to those specifications. When you're mining diamonds, you got to dig out thousands of yeah. tons of dirt to get a couple of carats of diamonds. Yeah. Wow. And you don't know what you're going to get. With, with grown, lab-grown diamonds, you can grow to whatever specs you want. So what is the process? I mean, how much time it takes? Suppose, you know, like if you want to grow a one-carat diamond of the highest quality, how much time it takes to do that okay. on an average? There are, two diff there are two different technologies. One is uh, CVD, chemical vapor deposition. That's similar to what they use in, in uh, uh, chips, semiconductor growth for chips. Um, mm -hmm. And the second is HPHT, high-pressure heat treatment. One, the CVD growing process is a smaller equipment, a smaller footprint, uh, and the HPHT technology is gigantic uh, high-pressure uh, uh, chambers. Uh, in the CVD process, to, to grow a one-carat diamond, first of all, you're going to grow a um, four-carat rough diamond, which okay. will cut down to a one-carat diamond, polished. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes anywhere from 10 days to two weeks to grow that stone. Wow. In 10 days, you get a diamond, and it takes uh, no. millions of years. In ten, 10 days, you get a, a rough diamond. You then have okay. to send it to India to be cut and polished and oh, then yeah. get it back. That takes another few weeks to do, and then you're ready to sell it. So basically, you have a diamond in your hands, you know, a finished product within months you know, like maybe one or two months. And whereas it takes millions of years for Earth to make a diamond. Wow. So on on that topic, does, let's say over the past 10, 20, or even the 50 years, have you seen a change in the view from the, let's say the industry, uh, the major industry companies in the jewelry market in precious gems on how they approach the lab grown? Are they Are they kind of, are they trying to get into it and take advantage of it? Are they still pushing up against it? Is it, you know, is there conflict between the two? What's what's that like? That's exactly that's a really good point because there has been a it's a very tradition bound industry. Change is very hard for this industry, and there 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 was tremendous resistance from two thousand four, literally until the pandemic hit, and hmm. retailers that were very tradition bound didn't want to see the shift to lab grown. But it, when the pandemic hit, for one reason or another, the, the, the availability of lab grown also became widespread globally. Uh, there were a lot more people growing it and consumers were being exposed to it and they just overwhelmingly gravitated toward it. Seven, presented with the choice, seven out of 10 consumers will pick the lab grown diamond. And so even the even the retailers that wow. were extremely resistant to doing it had to get into it at that point, and they are. So they're they're moving over to your side of the table. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I believe showing a consumer the choice 
and letting them pick which they want is fine. I, I'm not all or the other. I think yeah, consumers I like diamonds. That. They want to buy them. It's This is just another diamond. It's exactly the same except for the origin. Let, let's let a consumer decide what they want. However, there are people in the industry that continue to fight on this subject. Some of them are very traditional and don't want to see it. I'll, I'll tell you why that is, though, and it's, it's based on a marketing myth that was created in 1938 by De Beers that said, A, every, every woman should get a diamond for an engagement ring, but also diamonds, diamonds were an investment. That was a that was a marketing. Uh, I see myth. something that increases in value, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's all BS. It always was BS. Yeah, and it 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 really lingered on. They don't even market that story anymore. But it went from generation to generation. That's why the industry has resisted it because they like the perception of that myth that diamonds were a store of value, uh, and and lab grown diamonds are not. But neither are mine diamonds. Right. Yeah. There's never been a a, a serious market that have that have based their economy on the on on you know like a, on diamond uh, like let's say gold or something. So you know like I beg to differ on this point. You know I'm talking for, uh, from you know India's point of view. So when we buy diamonds over there, and if we buy from known brands, they assure us that you know like if we say like in ten years if we want to sell it, okay. We will get the appreciated value. Every year, known brands in India appreciate diamond values by some percentage. So if I buy now if and I want to sell it next year, they will give me a appreciated price of the diamond. So do the lab-grown diamonds also appreciate in value or they remain the same? I mean, is the market, is there an increase in the price of the diamonds year by year here for lab-grown diamonds? No, it, it in, in neither in neither the lab grown business or the mine diamond business is there an appreciation in value and if you if you don't believe me i want you to go buy a diamond tomorrow mm -hmm. and then come back a week later and try and resell it they depreciate faster than your car when you drive it off the showroom wow well in india they sell it as you know diamonds are forever yeah well that's what they've tried to say here too yeah Okay. It's a it's the greatest marketing story ever told. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But still, there is still a definite pull, you know, like when people go and buy jewelry, they are definitely attracted towards diamond. And with these lab grown diamonds in the market, you have a cheaper option with the same qualities, clarity, and mm -hmm. same attractiveness. Right. Yep. And I think you'll always like Marty, like you said, there's it's it's not necessarily that one's better than the other. I was talking to you, Manny, the other day when we were talking about discussing this. I'm like, what happens or is it there where the lab-grown is exactly the same? There are, it's indistinguishable with any type of instruments or eye or whatever. Is that br because at that point, supply and demand would say you've got an endless supply, right? So the, does that bring the value down? Um, again, there again, I don't know. What are your? Is that just me talking nonsense, Marty, or is that is that something that people kind of think about when it comes to the quality of it? Well, there's no question that right now the the capacity to grow diamonds has grown faster than the demand for lab grown diamonds globally. But what's also happening right now with the Russian diamond boycott is a lot of mine diamonds 
are shriveling in supply. And the price of mined diamonds is also deteriorating because more lab-grown diamonds are coming in and consumers are gravitating to them. So there's a constant flux in devaluation. But one thing that's interesting about lab-grown diamonds that is not true with mined diamonds, and this will affect pricing, is that there are other applications for lab-grown diamonds besides just gem. Oh, sure. And those applications yeah. are in the scientific yeah. community. Mm-hmm. And soon you will have semiconductors built on, on lab-grown diamonds. You will have quantum computing that uses lab-grown diamonds. You will have space technology that uses lab-grown diamonds. Diamonds are a natural uh, heat reducer in circuitry. So in all uh, semiconductor and all uh, microprocessing, heat is a big problem. And the more technology you put into computers, the, the more they have to be cooled to operate. And what diamonds do is they absorb heat in circuitry. And everybody in those uh, growing tech sectors are experimenting with lab-grown diamonds now. So once that evolves, it's going to be a thousand times bigger than the gem business. But also, there's a limited number of chambers to grow diamonds, so you got to decide which you want to grow for, gems or, or semiconductors. And that, that competing factor is what's going to stabilize pricing. Hmm. Never thought I completely didn't. That yeah, that slipped my mind to think about the scientific application scientific, of yeah. of diamonds in that way. There's so many things, especially heat dissipation is huge. It's huge when it comes to performance of chips and and systems. Hmm. Wow. That's that's crazy. So Marty, tell me tell me a little bit more about uh, kind of the uh, on on your way to where you are right now. What are some of the what are some of the struggles you encountered? What are some of the toughest times that you faced? And talk to me a little bit about about how you got through that. People don't know this <laughs> that don't aren't entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you guys are aware of this, given your own business development. But being starting a business and seeing it through is a very challenging thing to do. And you really don't have the assets and the, and the resources, whether it's capital or personnel or expertise, to compete with bigger people that are in your space. Don't um, we know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the hardest thing. And this is one of the reasons why there's such a high failure rate for startups is and you don't notice when you when you get started and you've come to find out that it's really hard you got to do everything yourself and that's really challenging to do um and so you have to be really energized and excited about what you're doing or in my case i literally invented a business category that didn't exist nobody when i started was doing market research with jewelry consumers and today, nobody's still doing it. I'm still the only one that does it. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? It, and a lot of a lot of companies, big research companies, have tried to come into the jewelry industry, but because they weren't born in it like I was, and didn't have the relationships like I do, they can't. It's hard to get in here and do outside work like market research. Mm. I have literally lived it. One of the biggest things I did from day one was build my CRM database 
and I still manage it today. Every single day, I am updating my CRM with everybody in the industry globally. What do you use for CRM? I use a, a, a small CRM called One Page CRM. We've been through about okay. 10 different platforms. We had to get something <laughs> that everybody in my company could use really easily. It's a cultural yeah. thing. Yeah. If people don't use it, it's not going to be effective. You're absolutely right. One page CRM, never heard of it. I'm going to have to look at it. Interesting. For everybody out there that might not know what a CRM, customer relationship management type of software that you want to get all your information in and leverage um, you know, on, on the front end, whether it's through marketing, in through your sales cycle, closing, you know, tracking funnels, everything. You know, it's, if it's not in your CRM, then it probably didn't happen. That's my philosophy. Right. So, so, Marty, since you are the only one, you know, doing this, how your research is helping the industry, how how your research is helping all these, you know, big players, and the research that you're doing is it like only U.S. based or is it like you know for global market? It's global now. It was originally U.S. based, mm -hmm. um, and now since we've been around a while and we've got credibility. Uh, we get inquiries from all over the world, people that have a new brand or a new product. And before they spend the money to develop it or bring it to market, they want to know what consumers will pay for it, if they're interested in it, and where those consumers will shop for it. And these are things that we can tell them uh, very clearly and very specifically. We can do uh, you know, price elasticity measurements. We can shift the components in the product using imagery to let the consumers rank which ones they will likely buy and what they will pay for it. And we can literally give a new a, a brand developer or a product developer, whether they're big or small, a, a roadmap to introduce a new product to market. And you know, just this morning, I got an inquiry on LinkedIn from somebody in, in Germany asking about a new launch they want to do and can I test the market in Europe. And that's the sort of thing... Uh, that, that we do all over the world now. Wow. So you are based out of San Diego. Do you have offices in other countries or all your business is from U.S.? No, we, we, we do not have offices in other countries, but we do have uh, contractors that we use in other markets if we need them. Okay, that's wonderful. So what's your process? I mean, what mediums do you use to do your market research? Well, everything is done on the internet now in market research. We can achieve very large quantitative research studies with thousands of consumers anywhere in the world, and they can be of any demographic size, shape that we want. Um, we even do focus groups, just like we're doing this podcast. We do video focus groups with okay. people. We do... Uh, Phone-based studies for quick pop-up studies with people. We can tell where they're shopping and ask them questions based on that. So every part of our business, every part of the research world has gone completely digital now and has provided access to millions of consumer opinions in very much real time. And graphically, we can show unbelievable product images okay, so to really get the technology that, that you know, like we, everybody's talking about AI these days. Are you utilizing that in your business? Yeah, we use a we use AI quite a bit uh, mm -hmm. to do image creation of products, to write articles. We publish a, a newsletter about lab-grown diamonds. Now we use AI to help us write 
interesting theoretical articles about what might happen. Um, and, you know, we use, we use AI in, hey, Matt, in, you in press releases about stories that we're doing. Oh, that's cool. Incredible. So I want to back up a little bit. So very similarly, when you were bringing us new, a new technology and a new kind of service to market when it comes to consumer research for this industry, and you're talking about things you were running up against and, and stuff, you're obviously there's market research companies that were huge, but they weren't necessarily doing things the way you were doing it, doing for that, that, uh, the same, the same market. We, it's kind of what we experienced, Manny, when we started, you know, it was, there was, there was still a huge transcription industry and, you know, competitors with thousands of thousands of people, you know, doing the work were up against new technologies like voice recognition software, which has evolved heavily into leveraging voice recognition software with machine learning AI to be able to anticipate and recognize speech patterns. And that, you know, those kind of things forced us uh, in our in our marketing efforts, cold calling and reaching out and just trying to drum up business. You know, we ran into people that had a need, but they were doing, they were starting things with live scribes and stuff. And so that's kind of how we pivoted and and did that. But always learning from the problems that were created by our competitors and then solving those problems and then kind of pooling it into a new line or a new service in a new way, right? That's kind of been the way we've, the way we've shifted. Um, with, with, with your industry, Marty, what kind of, obviously marketing in like the late eighties, like you said, via, you know, a magazine with a fax number to, you know, digital marketing and, leveraging consumer research over the internet via live meetings or you name it tell what were the biggest things you were doing 80s and 90s early 2000s to to the way you're getting things done now yeah that's a, a really good uh, interesting evolution both for you and for me because one thing an entrepreneur has to do is identify pain points in their target audience and try and provide solutions for them and it's not so easy to do because not only do they have to be willing to hear new innovations, but you have to be willing to seek those out and not get mired down in what you've been doing before. You, you, you really can't be afraid of change. You have to embrace change and innovation. And, and, and sometimes embracing change means making mistakes. And so I've made a lot of mistakes and, uh, you know, I got to, it's, you know, it's like striking out. You got to get back up and swing again the next time up at bat. But one thing I saw very quickly as the uh, technology started to evolve was it wasn't going to be an outbound marketing game. It wasn't going to be cold calling mm. for me anymore. What, what everybody that's really winning in digital marketing is winning at is the theory that content is king. Yep. You, mm -hmm. you put content out, whether it's research reports or news stories, you get stories written about you, you do videos, you interview uh, customers, you interview consumers, you put a, an array of content out and you, you wait for the clicks to come in from people that have the pain point. What, when, when, you, when you get clicks coming in, what we used to call inbound calls, yep. but now they're inbound clicks, when you get 
clicks coming in from a story written about you or from content being seen about you, that person's already sold. You don't have to sell them. Mm-hmm. You, they have the pain point. You already cl- got them to believe you have the solution. It's, it's a really much more efficient marketing and sales process. And if you tie your CRM into that uh, and, and start to, as you, as you mentioned earlier, track the sales journey with everybody, it becomes a very much a statistical, uh, a statistical model of gaining new business and, ex- and expanding existing business. Now, we got really good at that sometime in the 2000s when we weren't using the fax machine anymore. Um, <laughs> we, we, we got really good at creating content. It was our own research. It was people interviewing us. It was speaking engagements we did. Uh, eventually, it became webinars, et cetera. And, and, and we had it because we were the only ones really doing this. We really had a lot of subject matter and, and still do. Uh, and that, that became really the focus for us. Content is king. What was so you mentioned a little bit ago? You made mistakes. I've made mistakes. Manny, have you made any mistakes? Costly mistakes. We've made recent costly mistakes, right? Yeah. Um, but what's what would you say one of your biggest um mistakes was, Marty, when it came, you know, to your adventure here with this business? Well, generally, the biggest mistake I think for every entrepreneur is assuming too much overhead uh, before they have the revenue to support it. We yeah. we went through some boom years um, in in you know the mid to late nineties and even the early two thousands. We had a big office infrastructure and a ton of employees, and the business was good, but the business was not. Uh, on a consistent path. And so eventually all that overhead just strangled us. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's the biggest expe- uh, mistake we made is we ramped up overhead faster than revenue. Talk. I want to, let's sit, sit on that for a little bit because it's easy to just sit. We can, we can nod our heads. We can agree with you. We're running a business. We know how tough that can be. And, but talk to us. Talk to me a little bit about how that how that made you, you and your wife. You know, I mean, when you're building a company, you're bringing people in, you're protecting this egg, you're growing it, you care about it. And I can just say, from my standpoint, you know, almost every the only thing that keeps me up at night is making sure that I'm protecting my people, right? And I don't think that comes across a lot, whether it's small business, medium, big, whatever. I think. I think business can get a bad rap sometimes because we got to make really hard decisions based on money in, money out. And, um, uh, you know, how does it make you feel when, you, when, you're, when you're going through those tough times and you realize, I'm not going to be able to balance this anymore. I'm going to have to let some people go. And it's not just about letting some people go and opening the doors. It's like there's a person, a family, a lifestyle, a lot of things that happen based on what we're doing when we're, when we're leading people. Tell me about some of the, your experiences there and kind of what happens for, for you. Yeah, I, it's a very painful part of being in business, no question, is the loyalty you ask of your employees and the loyalty you give back to them. And the only thing I 
could say, and the only way I tried to make that an easier burden for them was you could you could sort of see the train getting ready to come off the tracks mm-hmm. a few months in advance. So I tried to give them as much warning as possible. And I tried to use convert all of them to independent contractors instead of employees uh, to, to at least give them some bridge to them finding another job. But yeah, the people part of the business is very challenging and Today it's even worse because you can't. It's really hard to find anybody now. So oh, it is. Uh, it's it's even more of a problem. Now, you know, it is. It's hard to find good people. We've got a huge market. You know, we've got. I don't know if you knew this, Marty. We've got about a team of two hundred between two hundred and fifty, two hundred people over in our India offices. We have two offices in India. Fantastic team. I haven't got a chance to go over there and meet them yet. It's always on Zoom calls and videos, and when they're doing celebrations, they'll pipe me in so I can see all the fun stuff they're doing. But and we've got about 12, 13 people here now in, on the state side. Um, but we've got a, a huge market of people in India. You know, when we, put a, when we put an ad out for a position, hundreds of people apply. We put an ad out for a position in the U.S. It's like pulling teeth to get, to get a resume. And, you know, you'll get, and then you've got to fight the battle of, you know, personalities and is it the right person for the role and the right person for your culture and, and stuff like that. But when you work so hard to bring the right person in, you have them for, for a while. And when something happens where either they need to leave because they found something new, it's, it is, it affects, I don't know about you, but it affects me because I care about people, you know? So I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that's a challenge. I think personnel Human resources is one of the biggest challenges of a of a bit of an entrepreneur, and that growth cycle is really affected by that. Yep. But sure. I believe you know these days people are kind of understanding. You know, like okay, nobody is sad or you know like unhappy when they are let go because with lots of you know like startups coming up and closing down you know quickly, people have seen you know business have ups and downs, and they it. It's not like, you know, they are working for a government. They're doing a government job, which is like secured and you won't yeah. be get fired. And people want to work, you know, want to grow quickly and they want to grow, you know, with a growing company. And they understand if the company is not growing, you know, yep. people are smart these days. You know, like they can see, you know, the trends in the company. And if they see the company is not growing, they start looking for jobs, you know, before even, you know, like their employer tells them, okay, you know, I don't have space for you anymore. So... It's not that hard these days. People understand, I guess. Yeah, I guess when you when you get a lot, and if you, and if it's a if it's a mutual kind of thing, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. Sometimes it has to be. You mentioned earlier about the next gen consumer and how much, uh, how much impact they have on the growth of the market moving forward right now. You mentioned you know the size of that market in India. It's a it's a it's a sizable market here, especially buying power is increasing. Obviously, um, with that. How you mentioned so that younger millennial kind of group that's growing up, how are they, how and why are they gravitating to it? Is it because it's a better uh, cost scenario? Is it because they don't really see the difference and they can get a hold of it quicker? What's, what's, uh, well, you did mention the one thing environmentally. That's a big, that's a big driver. But other than that, because of the divorce rates also, divorce rates are higher. (laughs) Yes, cheaper to get more diamonds. Yeah, the twenty the twenty five to forty year old age group globally is much better educated, 
than, okay. than my generation was. They're much more aware of the perils of climate change. Yeah. And they're much more interested in any product, whether it's shoes or cars or diamonds, that can show some sort of third-party verified sustainability uh, wow. ethos in the product. And that's why they're gravitating toward it. And uh, it's it's in the U.S. And, it, and it's all over the world. In fact, some of the consumers in that age group are in, in India and China are even more uh, uh, educated than U.S. consumers. And they're acutely aware of the perils of this. So whether it's clothing or uh, cars or anything, uh, they want to see that product. It just so happens in jewelry, in diamonds, sustainability costs you less. In most other industries, if you it's want more. a sustainable product, you right. pay more. Yeah. yeah. In diamonds, you pay less. Yep. That's a good good point. So we're getting we're getting close to the last 10, 15 minutes of the of the podcast here, Marty. Typically what we like to do is just have some fun conversation about hobbies, what you like, what keeps you busy outside of the office. You gotta have a lot of options in San Diego, honestly. I don't know if I'd ever be inside for more than I had to be. Um, what what are the what's what kind of stuff do you like to do outside of outside of marketing in the uh, in the jewelry sector? I'm a big uh, I'm a big horse racing fan. I go to the racetrack a lot. You're a racetrack, uh, so you put money on the races. We used to we used to years ago we used to breed uh, racehorses in California. Wow. Um, oh, now Manny's, all, Manny's since, all happy. He's a closet. I've been doing that since I was a kid. I, uh, my father took me to the racetrack, and it really stuck with me. That's cool. I mean, that's really cool. Manny, Manny loves gambling. Um, can't do the whole lot of gambling in India, but when he comes stateside, any opportunity, he's at the casino. By, by the way, I've I've been to racetracks all over the world, including the Bombay Turf Club at the races yeah. there. Really? Wow. Yeah. Bombay uh, Turf Club. I mean, Are you I familiar with that, Manny? We had like racetracks back in India, and it is le- is it like legal back in India? <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't even know. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh, great! I mean, there is a. I'm gonna have to open up a separate bank Delhi, account for about... him. When he's at home. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna be at the track. Where's is Manny in the office yet? No, he's at the track. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. You know, I think it gets a bad rap, right? Because you know, like a lot of things, you know, you you see shows and stuff like that or whatever. So, what's a typical day at the track like when you go on and you go see some races? Well, I'm actually going tomorrow. Um, to Santa Anita in Los Angeles, the opening of their season, the track is stunningly beautiful. The San Gabriel Mountains are in the background. The sun is shining. You get right up close. You can see them saddle the horses. The jockeys are right there. It's a very close experience, and uh, some of the finest horses in the world uh, race there. That's cool. You know, I've heard about this. You know, Santa Anita track from one of the movies. Is it like one of the biggest uh, races in the U.S.? Yes, it's one of the biggest races and one of the biggest racetracks in the U.S. Oh, wow. Cool. Which movie? And the other, the, other one, the other one down here in San Diego is called Del Mar. And Del Mar is a beautiful one. track also right at the ocean. Oh, uh, spectacular wow. views and great quality horses. Very cool. So just in case we've got any viewers that don't really know a lot about horse ri- racing, Tell us about the the good qualities, because a lot of times you'll hear, you know, media about horses aren't treated well, blah blah blah. But I don't I don't 
think any of that. Well, there's always outliers, right? But from my understanding, you know, these these horses, they're living a pretty good li- life, you know. I have heard, you know, like jockeys are not treated well. Jockeys aren't treated well? We don't care about them. Let's talk about the horses. Marty, <laughs> tell me about, tell me what it's like for a horse, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's thoroughbred. What's it like to be well, a thoroughbred? Keep in mind, there's all kinds of levels. There's really sure. low quality tracks and super high quality tracks. And, but generally speaking, thoroughbred racers from the de- racehorses from the day they're born uh, till the day they ret- re- retire are uh, live a very uh, comfortable life, and they're worth the good ones are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So, even the breeding process of breeding a thoroughbred is uh, very pampered existence for the. Horse. I was going to say, you know, if I retired from work. And my job was basically to breed. <laughs> I, could, I could live with that. So, so, so <laughs> the, the the best stallions can get half a million dollars a breeding. Wow, <laughs> that's cool. So, Marty, tell me one thing. I mean, since you are in this research field, how this field of yours is helping you to win horse races? I mean, are you doing research before <laughs> you know doing any? <laughs> Gambling. <laughs> uh, actually, the the interesting thing about the the horse business is before there were computers, mm-hmm. um, the horse business was the original big data business because the statistics yeah. they kept on every horse yeah. on just paper uh, were <laughs> incredible. Now it's all digitized, but previously there was so much history on every single horse and their breeding and their races and their workouts, and they still have it, but it was way before computers they 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 had big data so where are you making more money through your business or through horse racing oh. <laughs> it depends if you ask my wife or you ask me <laughs> well see the horse racing inspires him to work harder so that's why the business is going so well so really you gotta you gotta count it all <laughs> um maybe we can do some research on roulette so we know what you're doing this weekend, Marty. You're going to the races. Manny, what are you doing this weekend? What are you up to, bud? Now I'm all excited to go to Potawatomi. You're going to Potawatomi. Great. All right. But I'll you know, do some research before doing that. <laughs> Make some money. So, so Marty, Potawatomi is a, 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 a casino here in the Milwaukee area, Wisconsin. Wisconsin's got quite a few different um, uh, casinos that are, that are owned and operated by the different tribes uh, in Wisconsin. So pretty popular place for folks for folks to go to. Uh, me, I'm going to my in-law's house to clean gutters. That is what the life of an entrepreneurial celebrity like me is like. <laughs> I'll be getting up early, throwing everybody into the, the truck, <laughs> heading an hour away, and I'm going to be up on a ladder cleaning gutters for my father-in-law, who I love to death, and I'm really happy to be able to do it because we'll have some fun. We'll have a beer or two so after. You're saying the right things in the We'll catch podcast. up. And um, then I've got. Then my wife did tell me I have to take her shopping, so I guess I'm going to the mall too. So I'll take a nap in the car while she's in there. So <laughs> anyway, um, this is this has really been. Are you a, are you a sports guy outside of outside of horse rating, Marty? Racing? Yeah, I'm a big uh, college football fan. Okay. And I'm a big Big Ten fan. Okay, uh, so you're a Big Ten fan. Who's your Who's your team in the Big Ten? Michigan. Michigan. So two weeks in a row, we've got. So Big Ten, remember last week with David? David is a uh, Penn State guy. 
um, grew up in Pennsylvania. We're obviously in Wisconsin. So I, I do love the Badgers. I'm originally from Texas, so that's not Big Ten territory. But so I'm a Texas A&M guy that way. So Michigan. Michigan's an interesting story. Michigan was growing up for me in the 90s, like in the high, my high school years, it, it was Michigan. It was Michigan basketball is Michigan football. Like those, you know, Michigan basketball literally changed sports shorts fashion. Because all the shorts were way too short for guys to be wearing, kind of like they are right now, back to oh, that. Yeah. But then they went down to kind of, then they kind of exaggerated and went past their knees. But Michigan, the Fab Four from that college basketball team, they started that whole trend, which was, you know, was, you know, anyway, Michigan. Cool. So I, you know, I haven't been paying attention to Michigan much this year. How are they doing? They're doing really well. They played Nebraska tomorrow and um, they have a super quarterback, JJ uh, McCarthy, and he's, um, you know, being very looked at by the pros. So. Okay. So we're, we're actually recording this a week in advance. So this is going to come out to public oh. next week Friday. That's okay. So let's do let's see. What are your um are they going to win? Is Nebraska any good this year? Nebraska is good, but Michigan's going to win. Michigan's going to win. Give us a what are they going to win by? I think it'll be 13, uh, sorry, th- 35 to 14. 35-14. All right. Lock that in. We'll check it out. We'll see if it com- we'll we'll see if that happens. Um we're trying to teach Manny about American sports. Big, he's a big cricket fan. Um, he taught us a week or so ago about uh, overs or home runs in cricket. We're six points. What's something else in cricket that you can teach us today? Okay, so in cricket, the highest you can score is you know like by hitting a six, which means six points. Yep. After that, you have if you hit you know on the ground and it crosses the boundary, that gives you four. So the highest scores in cricket are like the six. After that, it's four, and then whatever you can, you know, run between individually. The okay. Yeah, individually. No, it's not. It's never individually. So you have there are always two players. You know, like someone else on the field that you're hitting. Yeah. So okay. so you are the batter. The other one is you know like on the running side. So suppose you take one run. So you go to the other side, and the runner comes to the batting position, and they bat. Okay. So until both of them are not, uh, you know, are out you know they they don't get out they stay in the field Interesting. If the other team is able to you know like uh catches them or you know like, like how do you how does someone get out in cricket you have to tag them with the ball do you have to hit the base no first? so you know a baller there are like different ways that you can get out in cricket okay. so first is you know like a baller is balling you and if you miss the uh you know ball and it hits your wickets there are three wickets behind right. the batter so that way you can get out. So that's called like, you know, clean bold, you know. The second way is, you know, like you hit the ball and someone catches it before it, you know, gets to the ground. That is called, you know, like caught. And they use know, bare hands, right? Huh? Are they using bare hands? Yeah, bare, bare hands, yeah. Okay, you got us there, uh, buddy. Another way is, you know, like, okay, if you are not playing a shot or, you know, like you try to play a shot and but it hits your pad, you know, this area from knee below, you know, your knee area. And if it, it's going directly to the wicket, that's called, you know, like leg before v- wicket uh-huh. and you can get out. Okay. So that, that is another way. So okay. basically, the, and then the last way is, you know, like running out. So you hit the ball, you start, you know, like uh, your run to get to the other side. But the fielder, you know, 
catches the ball and throws it, you know, to the runner side. And if it hits the wicket, hits the wicket before you reach the running oh, side, if it hits the you wicket. get out. Yeah. Okay. Like you know how you get out in uh, baseball. Yeah. If you're running towards the base, and, and it gets to the base. The person catches yeah, it with their the touch catcher. The catcher, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's okay. called run Similar. out. Okay. Did you know any of that, Marty? Uh, cricket is quite a mystery. I mean, that was a great explanation, but if you're sitting there watching it, it's really hard to follow. (laughs) I am determined. uh, And with this podcast, one little thing at a time, I'm going to learn cricket. I'm going to learn it. I am. And I'm going to play it. Look, I'm teaching you guys a lot of things, but you never tell me. You just talk about, you know, like, okay, who we are picking, but you never tell me about, you know, like how baseball works, how basketball works, or, you know, like how football works. I'm going to write, stop whining on the chalkboard because <laughs> I just, I wanted, I wanted the audience to know that I was putting your needs before me in that explaining cricket. So what should we teach him about football? He knows nothing about the rules of football, Marty. If you're going to give him one tip, um, what, what would you, what, which, where should we start? Hold on to the rock. Okay. The ball. The ball. Oh, okay. Don't I thought let, you were like the rock rock. Don't let go of the football. All right. That's so it, you know what it's called if you drop the ball? If you're running with it and it gets knocked out or you drop it? It's called a fumble. Fumble, oh yeah. Fumble's bad. Everybody jumps on it, right? So that's a good that's a good point. But if you hold on to the rock and somebody hits you, I mean, do you want to hold on the hold hold on to the rock? Yeah, well, you have a choice. You have a choice. I mean, I see people, you know, like uh, like the quarterback, as soon as he gets the ball, he throws it. Okay. So that's like against the principle of holding on to it. Well, yeah, but the quarterback can only throw it forward in specific situations. So you know when the you know before before the ball gets hiked to the quarterback, you know how there's a line of guys on offense in front of the quarterback facing that way, and then there's the other guys facing against them. So the quarterback's on offense with his guys. The other side is defense. Once it's hiked, that's when you see them run into each other. Before they before it's hiked, there's what's called the line of scrimmage, wherever the the nose of the ball is as it's on the ground. The line of scrimmage, it extends from one sideline to the other. You don't see it when you watch it on TV, you see a yellow line. That yeah, used to I not that, that yeah. used to not be there. It's so funny when they first started using that years back when my, my wife and I are watching. <laughs> she's like, and we go to a live game. We went to a Green Bay game or something. And she's like, where's the yellow line? I can't tell. I can't tell. Where's the yellow line? I'm like, honey, that's that's digital. So how that line is decided? I mean, how do so you So the line is that decided is? by the where the ball ended up after the previous play. Okay. So the idea is to advance the ball, right? And you have we're gonna we're we're, we're gonna get all through all the rules here. But anyway, when he's saying don't fumble, let's say ball's hiked to the quarterback. His job is to get it to somebody to advance the ball or advance the ball himself. Mm-hmm. It's everybody else's job on his side of the ball to help the ball get advanced. So if I'm the quarterback, I either want to do a forward pass, but I can only throw the ball forward if I'm behind the line of scrimmage. Okay. If I run it and 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 advance beyond that line of scrimmage, I can only toss the ball backwards, which is dangerous when a play is running and there's a lot of things going on in the field. There's a lot of chaos. You could toss it to somebody else. The person you toss it to could drop it. Because if I toss it backwards and it hits the ground, it's still a live ball. Someone on the other team could grab it, possess it, get tackled down or run it in the opposite direction. If I throw it forward and I throw it to a receiver who misses it and it hits the ground, it's a dead ball. But I could throw it forward and someone on the other team could catch it. So I have another question, but maybe it's like for the next time. Okay. But anyway, what did you learn? You learned don't fumble the ball. Yeah, hold on to the rock. 
line of scrimmage. Yeah. You know, it should be a diamond. It should be a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> Lab-grown diamond. I will Lab definitely hold diamond. on to that. No, this is this has been really good. Well, Marty, I think we're we're about at that time. Um, I am definitely, uh, I definitely feel like I've benefited and profited from this conversation. I want to say I really appreciate your time today. I appreciate you uh, taking that time out to come visit with us here um, today. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Anything, anything you want to leave the folks with before we, before we finish up for today? No, I really enjoyed meeting you guys. I, uh, I thought this was very uh, energetic conversation and I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Well, have fun at the races. Um, if you put some money down, I hope you win big. Um, Manny, I'm calling your I'll wife get in and touch with you, you keep Marty. You inside. You're not allowed. You know, I want to learn about, you know, like horse racing and, you know, like how you, you know, glowing right now. Play. Glowing. <laughs> <laughs> Telling you, Marty. Oh, I'm going to rue the day of this podcast. Anyway. Okay. This has been fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for episode three of the Business Line podcast. And until next week, have a great one. Take care. <laughs>